around some foundational understandings of the Bible, God, and the Gospel. Last week, we talked about the Trinity. A little bit of review. In what book of the Bible do we find the word Trinity? That's right. It is a trick question because it is not in the Bible. But we can still say that the Trinity is clear in the Bible. How can we say that? Where in the scriptures? No, yes, that, in, uh, in certain passages we definitely see that, but what I'm getting at here is that when you examine the Bible in its entirety, the Trinity is plain. That's, a, that's one of the points I tried to make in the last lesson, that when you look at the Bible as a whole, the Trinity is plain. It is impossible to miss. So even though the word Trinity is Trinity is not in the Bible. A concept is certainly all over the Bible. Can someone, can someone summarize for me the concept of the Trinity? What is it? Yeah, Andrew. Okay. I think we can um, add a, a couple terms there though, to fill out that definition, but I think you're fundamentally right. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're all God. It's one God and three persons. This is a often the way it's described, a good way to, to think about it, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these persons are not confounded, that is, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, etc. Neither should we think of the Godhead being made up of one-third, when you add all these three together, then you're fully God. No, actually, the Son is God in his fullness. The fullness of deity dwells in him. Everything that is God is found in the Son. And the same thing is true with the Father, and the same thing is true with the Holy Spirit. The Trinity in a certain sense, is mysterious and hard to understand. Yet, in another sense, it's very simple and very clear. One God, three distinct persons, that is, they're not the same, and each person is the one true God. Now, I alluded to this question at the end of last week's lesson, but we should ask, does someone need to know about the Trinity or believe in the Trinity to be saved? This isn't the easiest question to answer, and I don't have time this morning to discuss it at length, but I think the quickest and most accurate response to the question is both yes and no. Do you need to know the Trinity to be saved? Yes and no. Certainly, one does not have to know the word Trinity, nor does one need to be aware of all the details of the Trinity to be saved. However, one must understand who Christ fundamentally is and claims to be. Fully God, fully man, the only substitute for our sins. The New Testament is very explicit that we must get Christ correct in order to be saved. Acts 4.12, for example, says, speaking of Jesus, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. This verse emphasizes that the message of salvation is the word about Jesus Christ. But it's not enough to believe in a Jesus. You must believe in the Jesus. If you believe Jesus was only a good teacher or, or just a created being, you don't really believe in Jesus. And if you don't believe in the Jesus that was revealed in the scriptures, then you aren't saved. You're still in your sins. You will die in your sins and go into eternal fire. So in that sense, the Trinity, that, that Trinitarian understanding is 
indeed essential for salvation. If you have more questions about this, like, hey, what about Old Testament believers, or what about people who don't know about the Holy Spirit? Come talk to me afterwards, or come see one of the elders, and I'd be happy to talk through that more with you. But I did want to mention at least that basic response about the Trinity's importance for salvation. Well, we've learned some fundamentals about God and the Bible, but we're now going to turn our attention in these last two or three lessons to the Gospel. What has the one triune God done in history and recorded in the Bible for us as good news? As I said, we'll take the next two or three weeks to discuss this. Today, we're going to construct an overview of history using the Bible and a seven C's outline. Then, we're going to compare that biblical outline to the historical outline that is posited to us by our culture. We're going to see, of course, that these versions of history are very different. Next week, we're going to build on this framework, this outline of history, by talking about what is the main message that comes through the Bible's history. What is the heart of the gospel? That's next week. We'll be looking at a number of passages today. Won't be spending too much time on any of them, so make sure your fingers are limber, limber to move through the Bible. Let's pray before we go further. Lord God, help me to be able to explain clearly the history of your word. I pray, Lord, that this time would be edifying, that you would reveal a greater understanding to me and to the congregation about your greatness and what you do in history. In Jesus' name, amen. And many of you know already, if you've been with me in other Sunday school classes, that I love history. It's part of what I studied in college. I've been fascinated with it ever since my youth. But it's not just because history is interesting to me. I also love history because it explains a lot about why the world is the way that it is today. If we can know why the world is the way that it is and how it got that way, we can act more wisely in the world. We can walk circumspectly. History is very important for us in that sense. Well, the Bible, besides being a supernatural revelation from God, is also a history book. It contains other genres, yes, like poetry, prophecy, or epistles, but these genres, too, draw on and explain the implications of what actually happened in the past and what actually was said in the past. The Bible is not a book of feel-good stories, fables, or illustrations of moral principles. It is a presentation of, explanation of, and reaction to history. The history of God creating and then revealing himself to mankind. If history in general can help us better understand the world and why it is the way it is today, much more so will the supernatural Bible help us to understand why the world is the way that it is and why we are the way that we are. To this end, Answers in Genesis has a historical outline based on the Bible that identifies seven moments in history that had a profound effect on all humans. These seven moments can be identified with words all starting with the letter C, hence our title. Obviously, this will not be an exhaustive outline of historical events or even an exhaustive outline of the major historical events in the Bible. But these seven C's will give us a good framework for understanding what has happened in history and for explaining that history to those who don't know about it or who don't know about Christ. Now, you have a handout with you, hopefully, that you received. This is the main thing that we're going to be doing today. There's actually not really a spot in your notes 
in your workbook this week for uh, going through the lesson. But this comparison chart, hopefully you'll be filling it in today. There's a section for approximate dates of these different historical events. And uh, a space for you to fill in a basic description of these events. And then we'll fill in at the end of class the secular view of these events as well. Now, I forget, does it actually list all the different events on there? Does it give you all the seven C's? Drat. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> I was going to make you guess what the seven C's were, but you guys already will know the answer. But, oh well. We'll start at the very beginning. The first C, which is creation. Our first C is creation. We're going to look at some Bible passages. The first one, let's go to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, look at verse 1 and verse 31. All right, here's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Now this first C is creation. According to a plain reading of Genesis 1, which I would argue is the way we ought to take this text, God made our whole universe every kind of living creature, the first two humans as well, in a period of six 24-hour days. And then God declared his creation to be very good and rested on the seventh day. This is when humanity officially begins. So obviously this is an important event in our history. Note that the way history starts is with a very good creation, a perfect creation. But when exactly did this happen? Can we set an approximate date? Actually, we can't. But I don't mean based off of the fossil record or geology. The Bible itself gives us indications about the timing of creation. Turn over to Genesis 5. You see there a list of genealogies. What do you notice is included in the details of the genealogies? The ages of whom? That's right. We get the ages of the fathers and then of their descendants. The list begins with Adam and makes its way to Noah and his sons. How could we use a bit of basic math to determine the length of time between Adam and Noah? With a, with a little detail. Yes, we'll be adding the ages together. That is, the age of the father until he has his descendant. And then we add that descendant's age until he has a descendant and so forth. Yeah, it's just simple addition. We're going to add up the lifespans between how, someone, how long someone lived before he fathered his descendant. Now, when we do this, when we and when we do this, and when we compare this genealogy with the other genealogical records in the Bible, we can conclude that Abraham lived about 2,000 years after Adam. Then, if we examine the genealogies involving Abraham, 
uh, if we examine them further and consult extra biblical sources for clues corresponding to the historical details of the Bible, we can conclude that Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Christ. So between Adam and Abraham, according to the genealogies, about 2,000 years, and between Abraham and Christ was about 2,000 years. As best we can tell, Jesus was born between 5 to 3 BC, maybe 5 to 0 BC, which means, according to the calculations I've set before you, about how long ago, how many years ago, did Adam live? About 6,000 years, right? Because 2,000 from um, Adam to Abraham, 2,000 from Abraham to Christ, and then about 2,000 years where we are today. So therefore, in our timeline of history, according to the genealogies, creation happens at approximately what date? about 4,000 BC, and that's what I would like you to put down in your chart. Creation, the universe was created at around 4,000 BC. Now, I, I know that some evangelical theologians will say, hey, you can't use the genealogies for determining that because genealogies have gaps. It can't be trusted to provide chronological information. But this is not the case. We're not going to get into the specifics right now, but there are some great articles on the Answers in Genesis website precisely about that question. Can we trust the genealogies to give us chronological information? Do they have gaps? The arguments there, and I'll present them later in the course, but if you're interested now, you can go look. They show that objections about gaps in the genealogies, these genealogies, are ultimately groundless. So I would recommend that you check, that, check out those articles from the Answers in Genesis website. Just type in genealogies. So here's our first C, creation. God creates a perfect universe around 4,000 BC, a universe that is free of death, disease, pain, suffering, and sin. It was a very good creation. But this quickly changes with our second C, which is corruption. Turn back to Genesis 3. We'll just read Genesis 3, 6 and 7. You're familiar with this passage. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This is the event that, this is the event that we know as the fall. Man rebels against God, and sin enters the world. According to the Bible, how much time went by between creation, the creation and the fall? Tough question, because the answer is, we don't know. We don't know. The Bible doesn't give us clear indicators about this, but many evangelical commentators suggest that sin entered the world soon, after the close of the creation week. I'll discuss some reasons for thinking that way in a later class. Probably very soon after creation, we have the fall. Man rebels against God, and the universe is forever changed. It wouldn't only impact Adam and Eve, but the whole universe became corrupted. I'm going to read to you a passage from the New Testament, you don't have to turn there. Romans 8, Romans 8, 20 to 22 says this. 
for the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also would be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So man is corrupted. The whole creation, the very good creation, is corrupted by this event. God's creation was quickly marred by sin. Man died spiritually, became cursed. The whole universe became subject to death, corruption, and futility. Now, because this happens very likely soon after creation, the approximate date for the fall is also going to be about 4,000 B.C. Since this affects the whole universe and affects mankind, this also is an extremely important moment in humanity's history. Yeah, Greg. And what's the connection? Oh, okay. All right, yeah. So, so the comment, just to repeat for the recording, is one of the reasons, or one of the reasons that suggests that the fall, corruption, happened very soon after the creation was that the command to be fruitful and multiply hadn't happened by the time of the fall. And so um, since they hadn't done that, they hadn't pursued that, we're probably looking at the fall happening very soon after creation. So we have corruption at around 4,000 B.C. along with creation. Sin increases on the earth. Mankind finds more and more ways to deny God's authority and his loveliness and increases to such a level that God in Genesis 6 declares that he's sorry he's made man and he plans to wipe them out. But there's one man, Noah, who finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this brings us to our third C, catastrophe. And what catastrophe are we talking about? The flood. When did the flood take place? Probably around 2350 BC or 2350 BC. So this would be about 1,650 years after creation. And where are we building this from? Again, this is from the genealogies, the ages and the genealogies. We have catastrophe. God sends a global flood to judge mankind. And God designed this flood to destroy all air-breathing and land-dwelling creatures. This was not as some suggest, a hyper, hyperbolically described local flood, this was a worldwide flood that completely covered all land on earth, even the highest mountains. Turn to Genesis 7. It's hard to miss this in the text. Genesis 7, we'll look at verses 11 to 12 and then 18 to 21. Here's verse 11. In the 600 year, 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Skipping to verse 18. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth 
and all mankind. This is the flood, a globe-impacting event uh, that destroyed all land creatures. It would also alter the world in many ways going forward. Worldwide geology was fundamentally altered. Even today, scientists observe rock layers that extend across whole continents and contain billions of dead things. While scientists interpret the meaning of these layers according to their presuppositions, we, from the trustworthiness of the Bible, can see that this is consistent with a global flood. Moreover, humanity survived, but humanity would be different. No doubt, the diversity in the gene pool was drastically reduced. What we know about genetics and DNA and variations that can be produced by DNA, you were suddenly reduced to just eight people and whatever genes they had. We'll talk more about in later lessons how all the animals fit into the ark or how the flood reshaped the earth and other details, but for now, some basic information. Catastrophe of the flood was another important event in the history of all men, but so was the event that came soon afterward. Only about a hundred years later, we have an event that will fundamentally change the relationships between all humans, and that is the confusion. Confusion at the Tower of Babel. Okay, so again, the date there for catastrophe, around 2350 BC. Turn to Genesis 11. The flood ends a little bit more, uh, ends a little bit more than a year after it began, and God commanded the eight survivors to multiply and fill the earth. But this is what we read in Genesis 11, starting in verse one. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, "Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly." And they used brick for, a brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city, and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. This is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. The Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, which, because there, there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So rather than seeking to fulfill, or seeking to fill the earth according to God's commandment, Noah's descendants gathered together to build a tower to their own glory. This rebellion, too, ends up affecting all humanity because God breaks mankind's one language into many, forcing different families to scatter across the globe by themselves. This is important. This scattering by language would further separate the gene pool. The results were various people groups, speaking different languages, having separate cultures and traditions, and increasingly looking different from one another, even though they're all part of the same human race. It's just a variation playing out within those limited gene pools. Now where specifically did Noah's descendants go? 
Well, actually, Genesis has pretty detailed information about that. Genesis 10 describes um, what's called the table of the nations. And it's easier to see what it's talking about through a map. Hopefully you can see the different colors on there. But the three colors on this map correspond to Noah's three sons. The orange is uh, Ham, the green is Japheth, and the blue is Shem. Oh, yeah, did I get that right? The blue or the purple. It looks blue on the screen, but I think it's purple in the original. So you can see where they settled. This is actually according to Genesis 10. And they're going to spread out from there. See Ham mostly uh, around Egypt. And the, the purple, that is Shem, more in the east. Now I mentioned earlier that the episode at Babel probably took place about 100 years after the flood. Well, how can I say that? Look at Genesis 10 for a second and verse 25. Verse 25 says, Two sons were born to Eber, and the name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Now the, the reason it says, for in his days the earth was divided, is because Peleg actually means division. It's one of those Hebrew names that has something to do with when he was born. And since the Tower of Babel is discussed in the next chapter, and since Genesis doesn't talk about any other kind of world division, the division most likely meant by Peleg's name is the division at the Tower of Babel. Now, let's look a little bit at the context. Look at Genesis, 21, or Genesis 10, 21 to 25. How many generations after Shem is Peleg born? Not seven, actually four, because we have Shem, who has Arpachshad as his son, then Shelah, then Eber, then Peleg. So if we don't count Shem, that's four generations. If we allow about 20 to 40 years per generation, the episode at Babel would have happened approximately between how many years after Noah? Between what and what? If we allow 20 to 40 years per generation. 80 and not 120, 160, between 80 and 160 years. So again, we're not talking very far away from the flood. It's likely that the generations were shorter rather than longer in their increments. So the confusion at Babel probably took place around 2240 BC. So there's the other approximate date for you to put down. A little more than 100 years after the flood. So we've covered the first four C's, these profoundly important events in human history. Creation, corruption, catastrophe, and confusion. But we're only in Genesis 11. This fact should make us appreciate at least two things. One, there, ha there has been a lot of very important history that happened way before you and I were ever born. Thousands of years ago, Events were happening that dramatically affect our lives today. That's one thing we should realize. And two, we should realize that it's important to get the beginning of Genesis correct. We'll see this more later on in the class, but the first 11 chapters of Genesis are some of the most attacked in the Bible. 
Yet these 11 chapters describe some of the most fundamental information regarding why the world is the way that it is, regarding our origins. Indeed, much of the relevance of the gospel message is tied up in a correct understanding of human origins and history. If Adam didn't really exist, if the fall never really happened, if the flood was just a big exaggeration, or if Babel was just a myth, not only does it have massive implications about the Bible's inerrancy, but it wreaks havoc on the gospel message and leaves us without answers to some of life's most basic questions. Why is the world like this? Why am I like this? This is another reason why we're using this curriculum. We want to uphold Genesis 1 to 11 along with the rest of the Bible as accurate and relevant history. Now we're going to keep moving through the other C's. I have time for questions after we go through the, the next three. The fifth C is going to jump pretty far ahead in time because the fifth C is Christ. Christ appearing around 3 B.C. More than 2,000 years after the confusion at Babel, we have Christ. There's a lot of Old Testament happenings, though, that lead up to Christ and have to do with the nation of Israel. Indeed, we could probably do a whole lesson on seas related to Israel's history. We've got the covenant with Abraham, commandments with Moses, camping in the wilderness, conquest of the promised land, crown, the time of the king, captivity, etc. But the culmination, see what I did there, of what God was doing with Israel comes with Christ. Galatians 4, 4-5 says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. This event, the coming of Christ and his incarnation, would also have worldwide implications. It was the fulfillment of many promises to Abraham and to his descendants. Through Jesus, all the families of the earth, or many families of the earth, would be blessed. Let's read Matthew 1:18. The 23. Probably know this passage well from reading it at Christmas time. Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Jesus, our Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth to save his people from their sin, the sin that was brought into the world in the second seed, through the fall, by the first Adam. Jesus, as a second Adam, would become a new representative for mankind freeing all those who believe in him. Jesus lives a perfectly sinless life on earth and then becomes the righteous substitute on man's behalf on the sixth sea. And we see that the sixth sea is the cross. So again, Christ born around three, that should be three B.C., pardon me. 
around 3 BC. The sixth C is the cross. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Yes, Carol. That's right. It has a lot to do with God showing forth his love toward us. Uh, there's some Bible verses that say that explicitly. But we need some more to answer that question. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Yeah, Rob. Right. So to repeat what you said, he ultimately dying for the praise of his own glory, for the praise of the glory of God, that's accurate and true according to the scriptures. But part of that is bearing the wrath of God against sin, the sin of those who believe in him. Jesus died to, well, let's let Colossians say it. Let's turn over to Colossians 1. <clears throat> Colossians 1, verses 19 to 22. Here's Colossians 1, 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, that is the Son, Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to, pre to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Jesus died indeed for his glory, but it was to suffer the full wrath of God and reconcile us to God. He paid for our sins and gave us his righteousness, gives his righteousness to all who believe in him. Even from the very beginning, before the world was created, it was God's plan to send Christ to the cross to redeem a people for himself. All the major moments of human history, even the ones that we've mentioned, they point to Christ in one way or another. Adam points to Christ. The fall points to Christ. The flood points to Christ. Babel points to Christ. And we'll unpack each one of those more specifically next week. Adam brought death into the world through sin, but the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus, brings life into the world for those who believe in him. And that life comes through the cross, the substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross, this is no surprise to you, Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection was the most major event in human history. It really happened. But just as all the other seas, oh, by the way, the cross, likely around AD 30, that would be the approximate date. If you want the full range, it would be from 27 to 33. But I think, I think I've explained probably in a different class why 30 makes the most sense. All the other seas point to Christ's work on the cross. They point to Christ. And so does the last sea. Though technically this last sea isn't history because it's in the future, yet it's so sure of happening that we can actually think of it as, as history. It simply hasn't happened yet. If Christ redeemed a bride for himself on the cross, in keeping with that met wedding metaphor, the bride waits in the future for the consummation. And that's the seventh sea. Now we don't know the date of this. This is question mark A.D. We're talking about Christ's second coming. 
This is the consummation. Christ will one day come back to do a number of things. He's going to gather his own. He's going to bring them to where he is. He's going to judge wickedness on the earth in the great tribulation. And at the end of that tribulation, destroy all those who rebel against him. He will restore the earth and set up an earthly kingdom in Israel for a thousand years, reigning in perfect righteousness and justice as the descendant of David. He will then quash the final rebellion led by Satan at the end of 1,000 years and commence the last judgment, the great white throne judgment, where all souls are judged. The old earth and old heavens pass away in a great heat. They are melted. Every person is then judged according to the records that God has kept on them. The wicked are thrown into the lake of fire forever, while the righteous are led with Christ onto a new earth with a new heaven. Different from the old, not only in their perfection, but also because God himself, God himself dwells on the earth with his redeemed bride in the new Jerusalem. Let's hear what Revelation 21 says. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. Describing this last part. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throat said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So this is where all of history is going. To the final consummation, our dwelling with God and enjoying him forever. Yes, Rob. Say that again. Why this picture? This is an artist's interpretation of the description of the New Jerusalem, where it's 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. So it's huge, or at least that's the thinking. That's why that picture. So we have here our basic outline of human history, just to review. We have creation around 4,000 BC, followed soon after by corruption, around 4,000 B.C., then catastrophe, the flood, around 2,350 B.C., then confusion, around 2,240, then Christ, around 3 B.C., the cross at 30 A.D., and then the consummation, for which we wait, though it will happen soon. And woven throughout this whole history is the theme of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. But again, we'll talk more about that next week. Now, questions.
Okay. We need to understand God's history, his history with mankind, if we really want to understand reality. There's, as we've seen, these events have huge implications for the world and for us today. We know why things are the way they are. We know many, or we know much of why things are the way they are because it's been revealed, because of what happened in history. But unfortunately, as you know, many deny this history. And they come up with a substitute history. And so with our last bit of time today, we're going to examine a secular viewpoint of the seven seas. What is the secular viewpoint on history as we know it in our society? Well, we'll start with creation. What's currently the most popular idea? And again, there's space on your chart to fill this in. What's the most popular idea for how the universe began? The Big Bang, right? Does anyone know when the Big Bang was supposed to have taken place? Actually, more than that, at least according to current theories. About 14 billion years ago. And the Earth formed about 4.5 billion years ago. So they don't agree with the creation account of the Bible. They say that's a myth. In the secular view, there never was a creator. Universe and life were created by chance. Matter was created by a bang. And life evolved from molecules to proteins to single-celled organisms all the way to man. Current evolutionary theory is that man evolved from ape to an ape-like ancestor, and the various people groups we see in the world today are the results of these different evolutions. Man evolving in different ways. So this is their view of creation. What about corruption? Well, what's the secular view of sin? There's no such thing. Sin is a myth. From an evolutionary perspective, a secular, atheistic perspective, there has always been death, disease, and struggle. Behaviors that might be labeled as sin, like violent rage, selfishness, or adultery, are not sin. They're just products of our biology. They're evolutionary holdovers. Or they're just disorders of the brain. Much, if not all, of what we do, they suggest, is a product of our genes and our social economic upbringing. There's no such thing as sin. Then we have catastrophe. What is the secular view of the flood? If it happened at all, it was a local flood. Right. Certainly, the flood account in the Bible is an extreme exaggeration or a, or a myth. It either never happened or it was local and insignificant. And if the flood is a myth, well then, so is Babel and the spreading out of the peoples from the Middle East. The differences in people that we see, like language, culture, and appearance, are explained by evolution and the process of natural selection. People evolve differently. Didn't have to do with the splitting up supernaturally of languages. And then we have Christ. What is the secular view on Jesus Christ? Exactly. Uh, maybe he existed. All right. But he was just a good man. Jesus was simply a good moral teacher. And the cross, well, certainly was not a very important event. He didn't need to deliver mankind from sin, since there is no sin, or deliver them from the wrath of God. The cross was an accident. The Jews and the Romans put to death an in innocent man. But perhaps Jesus sets forth a positive example in his suffering and going to the cross. The cross was ultimately, though, unnecessary. And then we have the final C, the consummation. 
with such different views on the, the, the pr preceding historical events, it's only natural that the secular view of the future would also be very different. What, according to secular thinking, happens to people when they die? They just turn into dust. There's no soul. There's no afterlife. Meanwhile, mankind will continue to evolve. We might be something different than human in the future. What about the end of the universe? Well, there are two main views about the end. It's either going to come with a bang or with a whimper. I'm sure there are other theories, but here are two of the main ones. The whimper is something called heat death. The universe will gradually go, grow colder and colder until everything is static and dead. The bang is the idea that the universe is going to contract and squeeze back together into a huge crunching ball. And this super pressurized collection of matter may explode again and spawn a new universe. So a very different view of history. As I said in the beginning, our view of history is going to inform how we understand the world and how we think we ought to live. Considering the secular atheistic view of history, is it any surprise that people in this viewpoint act the way that they do, seeing sin as no consequence, and that life is all about satisfying various desires in the present? God, in his compassion, in his mercy, he gave us a true history of the universe, however, because he wrote it in the Bible. So we don't have to walk about like blind men in our world today. We can walk with our eyes open. Before we close today, I want us to consider the third application question that's in the handbook. If you have your handbook, look on page 78. The preceding questions, I've, we've talked about them a little bit in our lesson already, but the third one I thought was really interesting. Question is, which of these seven events, the seven seas, does the church challenge the most? And then, why? What do you think? Probably creation. Though you might say maybe some, some of the other ones as well. And to a, to a certain extent, all of them probably are challenged by different segments of what's called Christianity. But especially the first four seas, creation, corruption, catastrophe and confusion. There's a lot of challenge in the church in those areas. But this isn't a surprise. Or well, let me ask you, before I give my opinion, why do you think this is? Why is the church challenging what we've said about those four C's? Yeah, Roy. Certainly, the implications are going to be really important. Your comment that if we don't start with actually believing the beginning of the Bible, that's going to lead to a lot of problems. That's certainly true. But why don't people want to believe? Why do Christians feel the pressure, or why, why are Christians challenging the idea of believing these, these first four C's, or especially creation? Yeah, Richard. Ten hands. 
think your, your comment is valuable, Richard. Let me just repeat it a little bit. We feel the pressure to conform to what society puts forward as history, especially about the beginning of history. And we are oftentimes very afraid that to say something different than what we hear from society will make us seem backwards, naive, unscientific, or unsophisticated. What are you going to say, Steve? I think that's a really valuable comment as well, Steve. The idea that this will make us relevant. This will give us a voice in society. If we can agree on certain things that scientists or that our society is putting forward, then that will give us more credibility when we talk about the gospel. If you remember in our church history class, the, the last lesson that talks about the jet tour through modern history, that was the, the idea of the evangelical movement in the, in the 20th century. That is, we want to be relevant in society again. Let's we want, to, we want to hold inerrancy, but we also want to be relevant. So let's show that we can, we can hang with these scientists, and we can hang with what, what, what people are saying in, um, in different areas of, of science today. But a lot of times it just led to compromise. More and more evangelicals left and are leaving inerrancy. Really, when it comes to creation and, and these seven seas, the struggle is real. There is a lot of pressure from society. And it's not just about evolutionary theory or atheistic theories of origin. We also feel it with calls to recognize the legitimacy of gay marriage and homosexual relationships, right? That's why you can't say something like homosexuality is an abomination without putting a qualifier in front of it. You say, I love, I still love gay people. God still loves them. But I have to say what the Bible says. Because we feel the pressure. We feel like, ah, they're not going to accept this. I don't want to seem so backwards. And we feel it also with, as I've mentioned before, women leadership in the church, women preachers and pastors leading and teaching men. Society is putting that pressure on us. And they even put science and psychology to back them up, or they try to use those things. We're not unaffected by those pressures, but we have to respond to them rightly. And how will we do that? Well, by going back and holding to what was spoken in the perfect and reliable scriptures. And not just the scriptures in general. These three issues, origin, marriage, and headship in the church and family, they all have their basis in what book of the Bible? Genesis, right? So, more to the point that we've shared so far in this course, we must hold to Genesis and its accuracy and relevancy just as we do the rest of the scriptures. And we must know that that's going to be one of our greatest areas of pressure, both from the others in the church and certainly from society. We're going to fill in more of the details about Genesis <coughs> related to these topics as we move forward in our curriculum. <coughs> Next quarter begins our chronological study through the book of Genesis. But right now, we have a framework. We have a framework for looking at history with these seven C's. So, Hopefully, you will commit this outline to memory. <clears throat> and you also, since one of these events hasn't happened yet, look forward to that. Because the consummation, our consummation is coming, where we will dwell with and enjoy God forever. Any final questions or comments?
sure did, Carol. Christ is coming again, and that's sure as history. That is correct. All right, we have two more weeks for our memory verse. Don't forget Psalm 119, 89 to 90. So I hope you and your kids, if you have them, are committing it to memory. Let's pray as we end our time in Sunday school and get ready for a time of fellowship. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you. We thank you for giving us reliable history. Thank you, God, for giving us answers in your word about the world, why it is the way that it is, and why we are the way that we are, God. We thank you for revealing truth to us. You are the God of truth. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you that we can trust you, that you don't lie. Thank you for being such a great being. I pray, God, that you would help us to defend your word, not be ashamed of it, but to love standing up for this reliable truth. Help us to believe it and trust it. And I pray, God, that we would believe it fully. Lord, I pray that we would know this truth and that it would cause us to repent of our sins. God, because we don't want to miss out on your salvation, nor do we want to miss out on any of the joy that is in your salvation. Because, Lord, it really is all about enjoying you. We thank you, God, that that's what we're going to do in an extreme way one day when we are there with you in the New Jerusalem with all the other saints. Thank you, Lord, that the consummation is coming. We look forward to it. Bring it quickly, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, for all that you do. Bless the rest of the service today. In Jesus' name, amen.